but that video, so just keeping that in mind, what, um, just to hear from you guys a little bit, anything that surprised you or anything that was a good reminder as we jump back into uh, 1 Samuel here? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What's that? Yeah, very simple. Yeah. Good. Yeah, over here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about how um, one book could have different purposes all at the same time, right? So on the one hand, we have the historical purpose of this book to show us how it showed us there that how Israel goes from this tribe, um, uh, you know, divided tribes um, all the way to a united kingdom under one king. But on the other hand, it also um, is put in there to portray the wisdom of God, right? And so we, have the, we do have these character studies where we can see the different paths of um, Saul and David. And so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see how the Bible is very rich in that sense. It can tell a historical story and then also a spiritual lesson in that story all at the same time. Yeah, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true, it's true. And yet it's interesting, like when I was in uh, Bible college, we in, I took my Old Testament survey class you had to learn all these key words for the um, storyline of the Old Testament. And we were taught um, these little mnemonics like Saul, no heart. Uh, David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart, right? And so you get kind of the, the no-hearted king, the heartless king, Saul. You get the whole-hearted king, David. And then you get the, the half-hearted king, Solomon. And there's some truth to that if you look at the stories. But at the same time, what I like about that video is that it shows that there's an arc for both King Saul and King David, that both of them end up not being this great messianic king that the people are expecting. And that's really important for us to remember, that as great as King David is, he has some major flaws as well, and all of that is meant to point to the need for this, this coming king, Jesus Christ, who will be the perfect king, and who won't have an ark that goes down, but whose ark just keeps going, <laughs> you know, who's just the, the great ruling king forever. Yeah, Irma. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting note, yeah. And, uh, and it's just a reminder that sometimes it's the, it's the juxtaposition, it's the difference between what we know to be true and our circumstances that lead us to that great kind of reflection and growth on God's goodness and kindness. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Jesus says in Luke, and I can't remember the chapter number, but he says um, those who are forgiven little have little gratitude, you know, um, or, 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 or praise little, you know. And so it's when we remember what we've come from that we're, it actually highlights the goodness that we receive from God. So, Any other thoughts or surprises in there? Did you know that it was just scroll length, that that's why it's divided in two? Yeah. <laughs> 
So in the Old Testament, that's, that's the case for um, all of the ones and twos, right? So whenever you have a first and second book in the Old Testament, it's scroll length. In the New Testament, that's not true, right? Because we have, for instance, like first and second Corinthians, and those are separate letters, right? But in the Old Testament, it's just scroll length. And so it was just a convenient place to cut the scroll and to move on to another one. So, yeah, it's interesting to keep in mind. Yeah, so first, second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, all of those are one book, yeah. Samuel? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure what the, because um, a lot of the a lot of the books of the Old Testament have different names, uh, like Jewish people have different names for the books of the Old Testament. Um, and oftentimes it's like just the first few words of the, of the actual book that are used as the name for it. So for instance, um, Genesis is Bereshith, which is in the beginning. So, <laughs> um, but uh, it's called Samuel for us, not because it's written by Samuel, because Samuel actually dies in the middle of this book, so couldn't have wrote, written the whole book. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's, it follows kind of his story and him as the kingmaker of the two kings that, uh, that Samuel anoints. And so I think that's probably why we call it Samuel. Because Solomon um, could also fit into this story. You know, he's the next king, and he's a king of a united Israel. And yet, he's not anointed by um, by. Samuel. He's just comes from the line of David. So, yeah. All right. Anything else before we jump into our chapter for today? Okay, cool. I hope that was helpful just to give you kind of the context and a review and a preview of where we're, where we are in the book. So go ahead and look at the first page here and we will jump into 1 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. All right. With Samuel's pristine record. So in in this chapter we're going to see, sorry, I just said I was going to start reading, but in this chapter we're going to see Samuel's farewell address. So remember the context a little bit that they just went to battle led by King Saul who who was kind of, he had been anointed as king and yet he wasn't really seen as king. He wasn't king in the people's hearts yet necessarily. And so then you had this this big battle up in the north of Israel um, and so he led the people into battle. He rescued the Israelites uh, from that situation. And then they all said, let's go and establish him as king. And so they go to this place, Gilgal, which is a place that we've seen before in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, because it's a place where when there's a national assembly of the Israelites, that seems to be at this point in history, the place where, where they go. Why? We don't really know, but this is where they go. And so they all go to Gilgal and Samuel stands up and this is what happens in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me. And I have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And so Samuel starts this kind of farewell address. And really it has all these themes that are kind of defining Samuel's uh, career as a judge and as a prophet over Israel. And so you see right here at the beginning, he's establishing his record. He's saying, 
who, who have I defrauded? Who have I um, committed sin against? And they're saying, no, nothing. You don't owe us anything. You're good. You have a good record against us. And so you see, he's starting what seems to be a farewell address. And what's going to be interesting here is that Samuel's not done yet, right? He's giving this address as if this is, you know, him retiring. And yet he's not done yet where he's going to do more as judge um, and as, especially as prophet and kingmaker after this speech. So just keep that in mind. Um, but let's take it a little phrase by phrase. So Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. So remember, they're here on this joyous day to establish the king over Israel, to lift up Saul, to kind of make him officially the king, king in the people's hearts. And then uh, in the midst of this great celebration, Samuel, the prophet of gloom, gets up to ruin everyone's good time, right? So he's going to start. And this this speech is not going to be a nice speech. This is going to be a uh, very dark and very gloomy and very characteristically Samuel-type speech, right? Because we've seen him so far that he's not one who rejoices. He often comes in uh, with a sour look on his face to ruin everyone's fun here. But remember, and this is really what he establishes right at the beginning. He says, behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me. So remember, the people came to Samuel and demanded a king, and Samuel knew that it wasn't in God's timing for them to have a king at this moment, and he knew that the kind of king they were asking for, which was what? A king like the nations. Yeah, a king like the nations. They knew that that wasn't the right kind of king for Israel, Samuel did. And so he's recounting here right at the beginning of his speech and says, remember, I did what you asked. I gave you what you wanted and, and made a king, I've made a king over you. That's namely what he's done. And so um, remember that he was reluctant to do it. And back in 1 Samuel 8, he gives this whole list, if you remember, of all the terrible things that will come from having a king in Israel. So look at this in uh, 1 Samuel 8. It says, uh, Samuel said, he, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so these words are meant to be ringing in the ears of the reader as they come now to Samuel saying, remember what I warned you about. And now here we are, and I've given you what you asked for, and I've given you this king. And the rest of this speech is going to be really interesting. Because remember, right now, the people aren't upset that Saul is king. They're excited that Saul is king over them because he's just led them into battle and it's been a very successful day. And so they've gone to, to sort of establish Saul as king over them. And yet, in the course of this speech, Samuel is going to convince the people that what they've done is actually still sinful. And so he's reminding them at the beginning, remember, I told you what would happen and yet you persisted and so God decided to give you what you wanted. 
right? Okay, so um, moving on, it's, he says, now behold, a king walks before you and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. And so he continues kind of his prologue. He's saying, I warned you about the king. Now I'm coming to the end of my time. I'm old and gray and my sons are with you. And uh, remember, again, the mention of his age here echoes the complaint that the elders of Israel had way back again in chapter 8 when they first came to Samuel and demanded a king. So look at this. Uh, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 8, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king, like, uh, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so there's an echo here of way back when they had first asked for it. He's, he's saying, remember, you asked for this king, and now I'm old and gray, just like you told me back then when you asked for a king, and my sons are with you. My sons are, are a part of you, just like you pointed out that they don't walk in my ways way back when you first came to me. And so there's a real connecting bridge here between chapter 8 and chapter 12 to sort of establish that this is sort of the beginning and the end of Samuel's real power in Israel. And so maybe that's why he does this farewell speech here. Not because he's going to stop being a prophet, but because his role as the chief leader of the people of Israel has now gone away. Now that they've established and accepted and embraced Saul as king, now he's not as much the leader of the people of Israel. Now it's, he's passing that on to the king that he's anointed and that the people have chosen. Um, and then also remember that Samuel's sons were notorious for taking bribes and perverting justice And so it's possible this statement that he makes, um, behold, my sons are with you, is as if to say, now they're your problem. Now they're your responsibility. You know, I'm moving on. I'm no longer in charge. So you deal with these these, uh, losers. (laughs) Um, Could be. And then he also says, I have walked before you from my youth until this day. And so you see really a recap of the whole book uh, right in these few uh, lines here. Think back to the first few chapters. Samuel was just a boy when he first started in religious leadership role in Israel. He was just a boy. He was uh, given as a Levite, and he took that vow, and he served under Eli, the chief priest, at, uh, at the tabernacle um, and at the, uh, the, the tabernacle with the ark and ministering and offering the sacrifices just as a boy, remember? And so he's, he's hearkening back to the youth um, when he began this and now all the way up to this day, the now that he's old and gray. And walked before you, that phrase when he says, I've walked before you, highlights a leadership role. That, that phrase in scripture, I have walked before you, is often something that leaders say. So they talk about, it, it's an image of leadership. Sort of that you're under the public eye, right? So I've walked in front of you. I've lived my life under your gaze. Like you've watched me as I've lived out this life. And so that's what he's saying here. Again, appealing to this as he's about to say, have I done anything wrong? He's saying, I've walked before you from my youth up until now. So you tell me, because you've been watching, do you have anything against me? Um, And that's where he says uh, in the next line, here I am. Testify against me before Yahweh and before his anointed. Here, I'll get that uh, line back up there. So he says, here I am. And that here I am is really interesting because you might remember that these are the first words that Samuel speaks in the whole Bible. Way back 
in the beginning of the book when he's just a young boy and he's laying in bed and he hears God calling him and he thinks that it's Eli. These are the first words that he speaks to God, here I am, here I am. And now, in his farewell address, this is how he begins. Here I am, testify against me before Yahweh and before his anointed. And so he starts the first portion of his address with these words. Prologue is over and he's moving in now to vindicate his good record as a priest, a prophet, and a judge by basically inviting the people to air their grievances against him, right? Sherry? What's, what we're going to see as we walk through this is that it follows kind of a legal formula. So it's almost like he's, he's vindicating himself of any wrong, right? So he's the one bringing the charges, and he's saying, and I am innocent of all charges, right? So it's just kind of, it, it, we're going to see kind of a courtroom language here. Even the here I am is kind of like testify against me, inviting them to air anything that, that they have against him. So he's kind of just establishing that he has, I guess, the moral authority to, to speak the way that he's about to speak in this chapter, because it's going to be pretty harsh in a moment here. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah, Bobby. Well, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> sure, this is, uh, this is Samuel's impeachment trial. There you go. Yeah, there you go. That's all I have to say about that. Um, so, where was I? Okay, so then he jumps into all these strange questions about uh, livestock. He says, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Test, uh, testify against me and I will restore it to you. So he talks about three offenses here that he is innocent of. First of all, theft of livestock, an ox or a donkey. Oppression is another one. So Samuel didn't use his position, his uh, role, his status even as a leader to burden others. He didn't defraud them. He didn't oppress them. And actually, those two words in Hebrew, uh, whom have I, when he says, whom have I defrauded and whom have I oppressed, those are the exact same word. So he's asking the same question twice. You kind of get the sense that he's just standing there saying, hey, tell me. Have I wronged any of you? Have I? You know, speak up. Raise your hand, you know. And so he's just kind of, it's almost this taunting kind of language in, in the Hebrew there because he's using the same words over and over again. Um, also, uh, the third uh, offense there would be accepting bribes. And remember, his sons were guilty of this same crime. And so, were, uh, so was his mentor, Eli. And Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, back in the beginning of the book. And in Exodus, it's interesting language he uses there where he says, um, have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Because in Exodus, bribes are depicted as blinding the judge. So the judge who accepts a bribe is now blind to justice. They won't be able to make a fair ruling because they've accepted a gift, a bribe, something that's supposed to tip the, the balance of justice one way or the other. And so he's even um, appealing back to the law of Moses here, saying, Who's, who has blinded my eyes by giving me a bribe that I accepted? And then he's vindicated. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. They have nothing against Samuel. And then he said to them, Yahweh is witness against you. 
And his anointed is witness this day, his anointed being Saul, the anointed king, that you have not found anything in my hand. So nothing that I've stolen, nothing that I've taken away, no way that I've defrauded you. And they said he is witness. And so Samuel is very bold and confident here. He appeals to, the, to Saul, to the king, who is about to have the authority to say off with his head to Samuel. But he more so appeals to Yahweh himself, to the eternal king as witness of his righteousness. That is some bold confidence in himself to be able to say, I appeal to God as witness that I have acted in an honorable way. That's not a statement I would feel very comfortable making probably ever, right? Because, um, you know, you never know (laughs) the ways that you've transgressed and the, the attitudes of your own heart. And yet Samuel here is so bold because he has such an important point to make here that he appeals to Yahweh himself as Yahweh's prophet to say, I am blameless before you today. Um, Also, the people agree to it. They know that Yahweh has seen Samuel's upright conduct. And so now they're bracing themselves for what he's about to say. Any questions before we move to the next section here? Yeah. (laughs) This is a really interesting uh, passage of scripture. Um, and it's, it's interesting because we've seen a lot of stories in the past few uh, studies leading up to this. And then now we get this long discourse that Samuel puts out there. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's recapping uh, his life and so therefore the book up to now. You know, he appeals to his childhood. He appeals to uh, the big inciting moment back in chapter 8 when they come and demand a king from him. And so um, you get to the point now where if you think back to that video we watched, this is a bookend on a section of the book. That now we're no longer following Samuel's story. Now we're following Saul's story. And so Samuel is saying his farewell in the book here because he's still going to be there There's still going to be mentions of Samuel. He's going to play an important role, but the book's not about him anymore. It's about Saul, and it's going to be about David after him. Any other questions or thoughts? All right, let's move to the next section here where he's going to bring against the people the charge of apostasy in uh, starting in verse 6. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place, the promised land. But they forgot the Lord, their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, a commander of the army of Hatsor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel. Interesting there that he's talking about himself, Samuel. (laughs) And delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. 
And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, so this is what just happened in the last chapter, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen. And I think the emphasis is on you there. Whom you have chosen for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And so here he appeals to the whole story of the people of Israel to say, what you have done in just in my lifetime in demanding a king is exactly in line with the history of apostasy, of rebellion, of moving against God's plan and program and commandments and moving toward your own direction. He's saying this is one in the line of a long history that we've established here. So, taking it a little bit of a section at a time here, um, Samuel said to the people, Yahweh is witness. So remember, um, just to remind you, when, when we see Lord in all caps, I'm transcribing that as Yahweh because that's the divine name, and it just makes it a little more vivid. Um, and Samuel said to the people, Yahweh is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. So here he begins his history lesson to reinforce the point he's about to make. And Moses and Aaron, remember in the Old Testament, are um, together led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, especially we see this uh, written in the book of Exodus. And that event, which is called the Exodus, is uh, mentioned in the law, in the Old Testament law, as a reminder of God's power and of God's goodness to his people in delivering them. And really interesting thing is that it is used, uh, a give or take, 125 times in the law as the motivation for keeping the law. So we're talking about just the law being the first four books of the Bible, which especially, you know, especially we're looking at the latter part of Exodus and uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So just in those books, we see 125 times that the, that, uh, the Lord reminds the people I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That that's often this refrain because it's a reminder that we don't keep the law just because God doesn't say, because I said so, right? He doesn't say, you know, do this and do it because I told you to or do it because, you know, be good for goodness sake or anything like that. But he actually gives us the reason for it, which is that I am the, the God, I am Yahweh who brought you out of slavery, who has been so good to you, who has protected you all this time. And so he puts it in there as this reminder to tell us that any commands that he gives to us are given on the basis that God wants us to have the best possible existence in this world and in the next. And so his laws, his commandments are given to us for our own benefit. And you see, even in the New Testament, sometimes the motivation clause is changed a little bit, but you will not find in the New Testament either, a command that is given apart from the intrinsic motivation of the Holy Spirit working in us to produce Christ-likeness. You won't find it. The way these books are written, especially the letters, the epistles, are written in such a way to establish, first of all, typically this is the way it goes. There's some exceptions in the order that it goes in, but typically an epistle begins with the theology, 
So think about Philippians that we've been going through. It begins with theology. It talks about who God is. We have this Christ poem in Philippians right toward the beginning that tells us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and it describes who Christ Jesus is in emptying himself, though he was in the form of God, becoming um, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so it gives us all this theology. It draws our eyes upward toward God. It describes this intrinsic motivation, and then it gives you the commands that come from that intrinsic motivation, which is the section of Philippians that we're going to be coming into, especially as we come into chapter four, you have command after command. And what we have to do when we come to those commands is remember that those aren't isolated, that God doesn't say, you know, pray without ceasing just because I said so. He doesn't say, um, you know, obey my word because I said so. He doesn't say um, any of his commandments just because he said so, but all of them are based on who he is, the relationship that we have with him, and the newness of life that makes that possible, which comes only through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so looking at the Old Testament, the equivalent of that is reminding the Israelites where they came from, reminding them of the goodness that God has shown to them. And so I am Yahweh who brought you up out of Egypt is not a threat. It's not to say, and I can send you right back into Egypt, (laughs) but it's actually a reminder of his goodness, saying, I'm Yahweh, your God, Yahweh, And I'm the one who saved you. And really, that's the same thing that we remember when we get the commandment of God. That he's Yahweh, and he's the one who saved us. And even it's the same, what I find so interesting is the same kind of language that's used. It says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And we are called, we, uh, in the New Testament, uh, the authors appeal to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're called up out of our sins. We are buried, our sins are buried with Christ, and we are resurrected to new life. We're brought into the newness of life. And so um, you see the same kind of up out of image in the New Testament as well. Okay, that was a little bit of a um, rabbit trail there, but uh, I'll give you that one for free. Okay, Um, where was I now? Therefore, (laughs) Samuel says, stand still that I may plead with you before Yahweh concerning all Yahweh's righteous deeds that he performed for you and for your fathers. I love this line because it makes me think of like a, a dad's lecture where he's like, now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before Yahweh concerning all Yahweh's righteous deeds that he performed for you and for your fathers. And you can just picture the people being like, so we're going to be here a while is what you're saying, <laughs> you know. Um, it does remind me, my dad was a, is a legendary lecturer, you know. That was his, uh, his great punishment um, for us as kids, that like if I had done something wrong, then I would be sent to my room to wait until dad got home. And I knew when he came home that uh, worse than any punishment that was going to come after, like being grounded or having something taken away, was the fact that he was going to give me a dissertation on what I had done wrong, and I was going to have to sit there and listen. Um, and he was a great, is a great orator. You know, he really does well. He recaps, and he circles back around, and he would usually begin his lecture beginning around, you know, somewhere in history around the domestication of cattle and work up to the present day, to the thing that I had done wrong, and then off into the future, you know, his projections for what's going to happen in the world. It was, uh, I mean, he truly is masterful at it, and I think this is the same kind of thing, that this old prophet is saying, okay, stand still, and I love that he says, stand still, right? Don't move, don't go anywhere, because I'm about to give you a whole recap of where where we've been and what's happened and give you a whole history lesson here. And then you'll see how it fits in with what you've done here today. Um, And actually, the other thing is stand still 
is, uh, is really the equivalent of calling someone to the stand. So that language that he used there in, uh, in Hebrew is courtroom language. He's basically saying, I'm calling you to the stand. He's told them before, testify against me if I've done anything wrong. Now he's saying, I'm bringing the charges against you. So stand still. I'm going to read the charges that I'm bringing against you today. So really it's more like a sentencing almost, right? They're, they're standing for the judge. The judge can read to them the charges that he's bringing against them. Um, and Samuel, is, that's essentially what he's doing. He's putting Israel on trial, and he's going to present God's righteous deeds in history as evidence for their conviction. Again, God's saying, I brought you up out of Egypt as if to say, I am good to you. I saved you. I protect you. The laws that I give to you are for your benefit, and you disobey them at your own peril. And so this evidence that he's giving here is evidence against them, that Yahweh is good to them. And that's what he says here. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Back again to the Exodus. It's not just an invocation now. Now it's further explanation. It's the initial incident in history, in the history of Israel, that shows God's choice and protection of his people. And he also appeals to God's gift of the promised land of Canaan here where they now stand. He said, they brought you out of Egypt and made you to dwell in this place where we are now. Then he goes on, but they, your fathers, your ancestors, forgot Yahweh, their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatsor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And so now we've moved into the period of the judges. So he's giving a really rapid history here. In the, first, uh, in the first clause, he covers the exodus all the way through the wilderness wandering, all the way through the conquest of Canaan into the settling of the land. And then now in this next statement, he's just listing off characters from the book of Judges. So he mentions Sisera, who was this opposing uh, general. He mentions uh, the Philistines, who are still their enemy today. He mentions the king of Moab, who uh, a couple times uh, came into power, but especially in the story of the judge Ehud, who fought against um, uh, the king of Moab, Eglon, at that time. And, and so he's recounting this history. He's saying, when God's people cried out to him in Egypt, he delivered them. Then they were brought back into slavery several times after that because of their disobedience. But every time they cried out, God saved them. God saved you. And so again, he's establishing the evidence here. He's saying, God has been so good to you that every single time you have acted contrary to his desire and have ended up in trouble because of it. When you cried out to him, he still came to rescue you. Every single time, he still came to rescue you. And so he's establishing this pattern as he's working up to the modern day here. Uh, he goes on. Then they cried out to Yahweh and said, we have sinned. And he gets into more detail about what the crying out to Yahweh looked like. We have sinned because we have forsaken Yahweh. And we have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. So that's the appeal they make to God. And then Yahweh sent, and now he mentions some of the judges, Jerubal, which is another name for Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and then himself, Samuel, me too, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And so their oppression 
leads the Israelites to turn back to Yahweh out of necessity and to cry out to him. And in their confession, we see what it means, what exactly he means that they forgot Yahweh. He's not just saying that you forgot Yahweh, that you didn't think about him anymore, that you were focused on other, you know, other tasks that you were worried about. But actually, when he says you forgot Yahweh, he means precisely what he says here, which is that you served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, this worship of other gods. That's what it is to forget Yahweh. Not just that he's not, you know, in, in, on, top of your, on the top of your mind or anything, but actually that you made the decision to move away from Yahweh and to serve these other foreign nonsense gods, these idols. And remember that we saw, um, when we looked more in detail at these specific idols, that this was the Canaanite fertility cult. And the kind of worship that happened to worship Baal and uh, Ashtoreth, which is um, the the, uh, singular of Ashtoreth, believe it or not, but to worship those false gods involved a lot of cult prostitution. It involved um, maiming of one's self. It involved, at worst, uh, human sacrifice. I mean, these were, this was a dark religion. And yet, throughout the history of God's people, it seems to be their favorite way to cheat on Yahweh. It's really interesting. And so he tells them exactly what they had done, and then they would come out of that, and God would deliver them from their oppressors when they would turn back to Yahweh. Um, this whole pattern that he's describing here is actually what you might call the cycle of apostasy. So you might have heard of this before. This is especially visible in the book of Judges, this cycle, but it's actually the story of the whole history of God's people. That it begins with um, God's people falling into sin. They, uh, and especially the sin that we just described of worshiping other gods and serving them instead of Yahweh. They fall into sin. That sin, then, God trying to get his people's attention leads them into servitude, which we just saw described here. That you were made to serve these other tribes, these other nations, these other kings. That servitude has this intensified suffering that gets the people's attention, leads them uh, to intense suffering. What's really interesting about the book of Judges is that you'll see that there's often this clause in the course of describing this uh, cycle of apostasy, that God's people are sold into slavery, they're given over into slavery, and then there's usually this clause that describes their suffering was great, or their suffering intensified, as if to say, it got, they got to rock bottom. They finally got to the point where their suffering was bad enough that they were drawn back to the true God. It's just kind of interesting. And so it becomes part of this um, cycle of apostasy. Into suffering, that suffering leads them to supplication, to look to Yahweh as uh, the one who can supply their uh, rescue from this. And he answers in salvation. He saves them from their uh, situation that they're in, and that leads them back into silence. The land rests, everything's at peace. Until, and you'll notice there's another arrow here, (laughs) they fall back into sin again. And this cycle of apostasy, if you looked at kind of the story of the people of Israel, it's kind of looks like this. 
just over and over and over again as they go along. They're caught in this cycle. They're just repeating it over and over again. Sometimes it's shorter. Sometimes there's a little bit of a span between one cycle and the next, but it just continues to be the case. And what I find really interesting about this pattern is that it's not just a historical pattern for the people of Israel. It actually happens to be the pattern for our lives, typically. Right? And so we have these big cycles and we have the short cycles, but often we find ourselves falling into sin, falling into rebellion against God. We find ourselves falling into servitude, not in the sense that we become slaves of someone else, but that we start to begin to be enslaved to that sin, as the New Testament describes. We come under suffering because of our enslavement to that sin that just became a part of us. We suffer underneath it. That leads us to cry out to God. God delivers us from that. He saves us from that. Um, And then we're brought into silence. Things are good just to lead us back into sin of another kind or often of the same kind. And when you think about that, it can be very discouraging. And yet, there's also the other note to this. It's discouraging in the sense that you keep falling into it, but it's encouraging in the sense that God always will lift you out. That he's always willing, when you cry out to him, to meet you there. And that's part of what the story is here. That Samuel is telling a story that is very sad for God's people because it's a story of continued sin, but it's also a story that really elevates God's goodness to them because it's a story of continued salvation. Let's go on. So now he comes up to the, to the modern day, the present day. He says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. So now he's saying, oh, and guess what? You stand in this long tradition. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when Yahweh, your God, was your king. And so Samuel brings the historical evidence up to the present, the threat that has just been overcome. And interestingly, this is different from the normal cycle of apostasy, just a little bit. So again, you see how it has a different pattern throughout history. But uh, notice that when the Israelites were in trouble this time, they didn't call out to God for help. They actually went further into sin. They hadn't yet reached the bottom of the cycle quite yet. Um, And they send to God a petition for the specific kind of king that they wanted, a king like the nations. And so here Samuel hits the problem with the Israelites' request right on the head. It wasn't that they were asking for something out of the realm of possibility or even something that wasn't proper for them to have. Remember, the law of God in the Old Testament allows for the eventual anointing of a king of Israel. Instead, the Israelites wanted their kind of king, not God's, and they wanted it on their schedule, not God's. And then he says, Now behold, the king whom you have chosen, who's right there with them, for whom you have asked, behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. And so Samuel calls attention to the fact that Yahweh's given the people what they wanted, what they asked for. And in other words, he's kind of saying, Yahweh is so good to you that he'll even give you what you ask for when he knows it's not really what's good for you, right? And so you see that that sometimes God giving us what we want is the very worst punishment of all. (laughs) It's the most painful thing possible. Because God knows what's good for us, but if we persist in asking for what we want, if we persist in our own way, as the book of Romans said, God gives us over to it. God allows us to have what we asked for and to deal with the consequences. All right, let's keep trucking here. Any questions before we come into this next section? Okay, so now we'll see 
the people's repentance. We've seen the charge brought against them, and now we'll see their response. In verse 14, Samuel continues, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still, there it is again, and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? You say, I don't know, is it? I will call upon the Lord that he may send, uh, send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. I really like that phrase. They greatly feared the Lord, also Samuel they feared too. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. This is a very interesting thing that happens here. Again, Samuel is able to convince the people at the height of their excitement about this new king that they've actually committed sin. He actually is able to lead them to repent and to feel bad about the thing that before he started speaking they were feeling really good about. Here we see not only is Samuel recapping and previewing the future here, but he's also demonstrating just how good of a prophet he is. That he's able to convince the people of Yahweh's will just by speaking to them. And also by this miracle thing that he makes happen as well. But, you know, <laughs> that probably helped a little bit. So he says, if you will fear Yahweh, serve him only, obey his voice, not rebel against Yahweh's commandment. If both you and the king who reigns over you, who is sitting right there with them, will follow Yahweh your God, it will be well. And so now the gloomy prophet gets to the good news, right? He says, if you walk in Yahweh's ways, then he will bless you and you'll have a good life. It will be well with you. And so there's the promise to say, just like those cycle of apostasy before, if you come to God, if you determine to walk in his ways, then he is ready to give you the kind of life that he wants for you. He's ready to encourage you, to lift you up, to save you, to offer you a good life. And so it's always available to God's people and it's always available to us that God doesn't turn his back on those who cry out to him, despite the history that we might have of working against him. All the different terms that he uses here, if you uh, will fear Yahweh, fear the Lord, serve the Lord, obey his voice, not rebel. All of those terms seem to be referring to the same central requirement. I don't think that Samuel's listing out, here's what you need to do. You need to fear Yahweh. Then you need to serve Yahweh. Also, you need to obey his voice and you need to not rebel. I think it's actually all the same thing. It's referring to the same central requirement, which, was, which is faithfulness to God's commandments in his word. It's, simple, it's as simple as that. What he's calling the people to is not that they have to do a whole bunch of different things. He's just saying, come back to Yahweh. Just live the kind of life that is in accordance with the way that he wants you to live. It's very simple, the kind of thing that he's calling them to. It's just faithfulness to God 
and faithfulness to his commandments. It says, if you will not, though, obey Yahweh's voice, but you rebel against Yahweh's commandment, then Yahweh's hand will be against you and your king. And this, so this is the complement to the previous promise here. This is the warning. While those who obey God are going to be blessed, those who continue in rebellion, in rebellion against God will face God's opposition. His hand will be against you. His hand, and that literally means his hand will be outstretched against you as if ready to strike you, right? Ready to come down upon you, to rain down judgment upon you. I mean, this is, these are, he's very, making a very stark distinction between two different ways for the people of Israel under this new king. He's saying, you have this king with you that you asked for. God gave it to you. It wasn't right, but now you have him, and yet still you have two different paths set before you. Obey God, be true to him, walk in his ways, and it will be good, or disobey him, rebel against him, continue in the way that you have been going, and it will be bad. And so he very, very clearly sets out these two separate paths here. And he says, now therefore stand still again, And see this great thing Yahweh will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon Yahweh that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in Yahweh's sight in asking for yourselves a king. And so Samuel tells people to stand still. It's the legal jargon saying, here's the charge against you. Here comes the sentence. And now Samuel's saying he's going to authenticate his message as being actually from Yahweh by asking Yahweh to perform a miracle, which is a pretty simple miracle, a thunderstorm uh, in a season where it would be unusual, right? So it's harvest time, means that there's not typically rain in Israel, especially down in the southern deserty part that they're in. But he says, I'm going to command a thunderstorm to come right now, and when it comes, you're going to know that this is actually Yahweh who is speaking these things against you. Um, on its own, it doesn't seem like much of a miracle, but remember, it's not just out of season. It's also on command. So that makes it a little bit more impressive, right? <laughs> yeah, Gene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a sign of judgment. A remi- and that would be a reminder for that whole year. When, when you're hungry, remember, this is your apostasy that brought you to this place. Yeah, that's really good, guys. Um, so Samuel called upon Yahweh, so now he follows through. And Yahweh sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh and Samuel. And so as promised, Samuel's prophecy comes true, and the result of this authentication is that the people fear Yahweh and they fear Samuel, his prophet. They recognize that what Samuel says comes true, which was what was said of him way back when we were first introduced to him. That's the reputation that he gained in Israel. Whatever he says comes true. And they see that that came true here today as well. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants, that's themselves, pray for us, to Yahweh your God. That's interesting, right? Yahweh your God, not Yahweh our God. but Yahweh, your God, Samuel, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. That's a very good statement of repentance there, saying pray to God to ask him to forgive us because we have committed evil. We've added to all our past sins this new evil to ask for this king. And so they name 
what the wrong is. They name their sorrow over it. They take action, which is to go to Samuel and to ask him to intercede for them. And that's not really them passing the buck, right? That's not saying, it's not like they're saying like, well, we could go to him ourselves, but we'd rather you just go to him. Because remember, we're in the Old Testament here. And so they didn't just have access, ready access to God like we do today. That's a blessing that we experience through Jesus Christ to be able to approach the throne of grace because there is really only one mediator between God and man now, and that's Jesus Christ who is within us. And so we come straight to God through Jesus Christ, through the spirit within us. Back then, not so much. They have to go through a mediator who brings the offerings, the sacrifices before God to enable them to step into God's presence. And so them going to Samuel and saying, pray to God for us, is not them saying, you do it, not us. That's them saying, okay, we're ready to come into God's presence. We're ready to be made right with him. So it is a, a genuine moment of repentance as far as we can tell. Um, let's see. And this is the second time, by the way, in these 12 chapters we've seen in 1 Samuel, that God's people have, as one great unified whole, called upon God and repented of idol worship. And chronologically, these events can't be too far apart because the first time that they did this, the first time they came together for a day of national repentance, Samuel was old and gray. And today, he's old and gray still. So it's, they can't be too far apart. And so we just have this note that in probably the matter of a few years, God's people have gone back to Yahweh from all of their previous idol worship, fallen back into idol worship, and then come back out of it in repentance again. There's been a little mini cycle of apostasy in there, and Samuel's able to convince them of the need for repentance. Yeah, Chris. Right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so that's exactly what repentance is, this image of not just turning away from something, but turning toward God, turning toward his way. Yeah, I do it every day. yeah you do it, yeah, and that's right. We have to do it every day. 
Repentance is not a one-time thing, but it's a pattern of our lives as Christians. Amen. Good job. Um, okay, let's uh, finish up the passage here with a call to faithfulness in uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Samuel said to all the people, Do not be afraid. You have done this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So he's addressing their charge, pray to to the Lord for us saying, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. There it is again, right? This image of the command coupled with the intrinsic motivation of love for God and the love of God. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so, very complete message here. Again, contrasting the two possible roads for God's people moving forward. Uh, Let's take it through here. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. I really like the that you just get a little uh, Hebrew language taste in there. Don't serve empty things, for they are empty. Really, the empty things are empty. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but that's to, uh, you remember about Hebrew, you may have heard this before, is that they, they don't have words like very or much. They repeat the word over again. So, uh, oftentimes when we read things that say, and, and he was very sad, or it was, he was very tall, it's saying he was tall, tall, or he was sad, sad. And so when it says empty things that are empty, he's saying they are totally empty. There is nothing in there. You may think that you can get a little bit of something out of there. You may think, well, I'm just going to cover my bases and I'm going to pray to the rain god so that I have rain for my crops. He's saying there's nothing there. It's totally empty. There's absolutely nothing going on. And so that's the the thing that that he means by using that word twice. And so Samuel is consoling the people here, though. But he's also not downplaying the seriousness of sin. He's really masterful in the way that he does this. He consoles them. He says, um, even in that first line there, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. They don't have semicolons in, uh, in Hebrew. They don't have any punctuation. So really, he's saying two you know, two very different statements, very different sentiments, putting them right next to each other. Don't be afraid. You are evil. <laughs> Those don't seem to go together. But in Samuel's mind, they do. Because he's saying, don't be afraid. God's going to have mercy on you, though you are evil. So he's saying, don't be afraid. You're evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Right? Um, he charges them to have courage. He doubles down on their wickedness in the past. He doesn't now say, it's really okay what happened in the past. I know I was really harsh before, but just know it doesn't matter that much. No, he doubles down on it. He says, you've done all this evil in the past. And then he encourages them not to compound their past sin with this new disobedience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, turn back. Yeah. Um, He goes on, for Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. 
because it has pleased Yahweh to make you, Israel, a people for himself. So notice kind of the Trace Samuel's argument here with me. God will not desert his people. He says, Yahweh will not forsake his people, but not because of who they are, but primarily because of who he is. He's not going to forsake you for his name's sake, because he has chosen you in the past, and he doesn't change his mind, he doesn't change over time, he's not going to let you go. That's a lot different than saying, than saying um, don't be afraid, Yahweh won't forsake you because you're the chosen people. It's saying, no, 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 Yahweh won't forsake you because Yahweh does not change, and you are his chosen people. That's a complete thought, and that's also a good reminder for us. We'll get to that in a moment, though. Um, he goes on, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. And so Samuel addresses the people's request that he continue praying for them. He promises that he will continue doing that. So remember, it's his farewell address, but he's saying, I'm still going to pray for you, though. I'm still here to be, I'm not, I'm not your judge anymore because you have a king, but I'm still your prophet, I'm still your priest, and so I will intercede on your behalf. That would be a sin against Yahweh for me to stop doing that. And this is not just an assurance, again, to pray for their well-being, to you know, pray, um, but it's actually uh, to continue to be their representative before God, to pray on their behalf, to lead them into God's presence, as we see under the Old Testament law. And so he promises to continue in the role of priest, acting as mediator between God and man, but also in the role of prophet, leading the people in God's way. He says, not only will I pray for you, but I'm going to continue to lead you in the good and right way. And he says, only fear Yahweh and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And this is God's way. A recapitulation of his charges at the beginning of this section. He's calling God's people to be faithful to him as he is faithful to them. Those who seek God will find him, and in finding him, they will find their greatest joy. And those who rebel against him will be swept away, one and all. And those two paths are still the same today for us, for everyone, as they were for God's people standing before Samuel that day. It's changed a little bit in the language that's used as we come to the New Testament, but still there's two paths that are set before us. Do you enter into the way that leads to ultimate joy and peace and, and uh, a peace with God and an eternity of relationship with him, or do you enter into the way that leads you far away from God, where you persist in your own way and he gives you over to the things that you've asked for? Let's look at a theological insight here, kind of going back to that verse that we just looked at, um, God's election is unconditional because it is based on his character. So here's what I mean. The doctrine of election teaches us that we in our sin could not choose to seek God, so God in his love chose to save us. Um, in the Psalms, it says that God looks down from heaven to see if there is anyone who does right, who walks in his way, and there is no one, not one person that seeks after God in the world. Um, that's the depiction of, of where we are in our sin apart from God. But there's nothing in us that would lead us to go looking for God. 
that might seem wrong to us, right? Because a lot of us have come to God, have come to Jesus Christ because we felt like we were seeking after him, right? I, I know uh, one of our elders, uh, his, his uh, story of coming to Jesus is that he read through the book of John because he wanted to know who Jesus was. And so he read the book of John because it says these are for you to know who Jesus is, right? To be mature in Jesus Christ. And so he's reading through, through the book of John and that's how he got saved, And to him, on his side of things, it felt like I am searching for something. But on the other hand, what Scripture tells us is there's nothing in us that moves us to seek after God. And so even that act of seeking after God is a work that the Holy Spirit does in us prior to us coming to faith in God. And that's the historical teaching of the church, that the Holy Spirit gives us what's called regeneration, which leads us to take the step toward God because there's nothing in us apart from God that would lead us to do that. Um, for salvation, The next bullet there, for salvation to be a free gift, election or God's choice of his people cannot be on the basis of any special details about ourselves, right? Rather, God has to choose us unconditionally in his sovereignty. And so election is not this doctrine that says God looked through, you know, the... the Door, the portals of time into the future through all eternity, and he saw those people that he wanted to be his people. Like he looked at their resumes and said, Gosh, you know, Doran is so nice to everybody. I'm going to make her uh, one of my people. And, and Judy, she's, she just loves to pray and read the Bible, so she's going to be one. And let's see, who else? Ray? No, never mind. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's not the teaching of election, though. God didn't look and and see something about you that said, oh, I've got to have them as part of my family. I've got to have Colin because he's so great. I've got to have Denny. I've got to have Scott. It's actually unconditionally that God chooses us in his sovereignty. And by the way, that's about as far as I'm willing to go with that. I'm not going to say that he chose randomly. I'm not going to say that he chose without any criteria, but I'm going to say what the Bible says, which is that, He chose unconditionally. There was nothing in us that appealed us to God. Rather, he chose us in eternity past in his own sovereignty. And that's the language that we use. And so this means that there's nothing about you and there's nothing about me that endeared us to God in order to make him choose us for his family. It also means that there's nothing you or I could do to change God's sovereign choice of us. That those who he chose... This is what it says in Romans. Those who he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. It's the chain, the, the, the gl- chain of glory from predestination, God's choice of you, all the way up until salvation and glorification, the culmination of our salvation where we're resurrected from the dead and brought into his presence for eternity. And so this is what we see in the passage in uh, Uh, verse 22. Samuel assures Israel that God will not forsake them because he chose them for himself, and he never goes back on his promises. He says, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And so, for us, we say, God will not forsake you, his chosen, his child, but not because you're so great, not even just because he chose you, but because he chose you 
and because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not go back on his promises. Again, in Romans, it says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He doesn't go back on them. Those who he chose, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he will glorify. That's the teaching of Scripture. And that is how firm a foundation, that is blessed assurance. That's what all of that means, is that when you belong to Jesus Christ, he does not let you go. A little bit of life application here, and I know I'm getting close to the end here. (laughs) Uh, Simply, God's way is good for you. That's what we see in the passage here. Don't fall into thinking that God's commandments are arbitrary or capricious. As creator, he knows what's best for you. And as Father, he always guides you into that thing which is best. And so I just thought, um, you know, you can see this in the, in the passage that we've seen today because Samuel's calling the people not only to the way that doesn't lead to destruction. Like sometimes we can think about that, right? We can think about the way that we talk about the gospel as just sort of the escape from the bad way, right? When in reality, it's saying that there is a good way that leads to the very best possible life for you in this life and in the next. And so you have, of course, these two different paths, one trajectory that leads through God's blessing into God's eternal grace with him forever, and the other thing that leads away from God's grace and into eternal condemnation. And yet we tend to think about this good way sometimes only in terms of, well, it's not the bad way. When in reality, God's way is depicted as this beautiful and refreshing thing and this place where not only do we escape from something bad, but we are given all the glorious blessings of belonging to Christ Jesus. And so I thought Psalm 1 is this really beautiful uh, depiction of what it is like to be in God's way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked will perish. And so, again, you see two paths depicted there, but just look at the beautiful depiction of what it is to delight in the law of the Lord, to be in his way, to be like a tree planted by streams of water, to be always refreshed, always fed, always full of God's grace, to be near him, to yield fruit in its season, to experience the blessings and the amazing things that can happen with you in your life when you walk in God's way. And then this just depiction here, its leaf does not wither in all that he does, and we're taken right back out of the metaphor there, in all that he does, this individual, he prospers. That God has in mind for his people a beautiful and amazing life. And it doesn't mean that we won't face trials and sufferings, but it does mean that as uh, Paul says, he doesn't consider that this present suffering is worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that God has saved up for his people. We have an amazing gospel, so let's not undersell it as it's better than the alternative, right? (laughs) 
let's always major on how beautiful it is to be God's people and to be that tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither, and in all he does, he prospers. All right, let's go to our prayer time. Sorry I went a little long today, but... um